This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. It's officially been a year since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. On today's show, we'll look at the long road to vaccination and recovery for some of Colorado's most vulnerable population. I'm still not 100%, but I'm working on it. We'll have more on that. Plus, we'll hear how the Special Olympics has shifted around the pandemic to meet the needs of athletes. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. On Thursday, President Biden signed a federal relief package to the tune of $1.9 trillion. The American Rescue Plan allocates money for small businesses, schools, and vaccines. It also includes an expanded child tax credit, which will mean new monthly payments to many parents, alongside direct payments of up to $1,400 to qualifying Americans. And while the passage of the colossal bill marks the Biden administration's first big legislative win, it came on a day that marked a grim anniversary for the world. On March 11, 2020, the World Health Organization declared that COVID-19 had officially become a pandemic. The day before, in Colorado, Governor Jared Polis declared a state of emergency as the coronavirus was making its way across the state. A year later, more than 6,000 people have died from COVID-19 in Colorado. And the death toll linked to nursing homes and assisted living centers is higher than any other category. KUNC's investigative reporter Michael DeYuana has been following outbreaks at these facilities since the beginning of the pandemic. He's found that now outbreaks at these facilities are significantly down. He joins us now with more on the latest data. Hey, Michael. Hi, Henry. So thinking back on the year, there were significant outbreaks around the state at prisons and at the JBS meat plant in Greeley. But it was these facilities that care for the state's most frail people that were the most deadly. Yeah, unfortunately true. Uh, There have been ups and downs in the numbers in the past year, but for the first time, it seems the tide is truly turning. Here's one measure. In early January, there were 288 outbreaks in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. As of this week, that number had fallen to 54. That represents an 81 percent decline. Is that decline because of these vaccination efforts? State health officials have pointed to those efforts as a game changer. Here's Colorado's chief medical officer, Dr. Eric France, during a recent press conference. We were successful in vaccinating our most vulnerable, the residential care facilities. 100 percent of our first and second clinics have been completed. And uh, as you see, um, over 130,000 residents of staff have been vaccinated. So lots of people have been vaccinated at vaccination clinics at the long-term care facilities, uh, which began in late December and wrapped up late last month. Well, that's good to hear, though it has been a pretty long road to get to this point. Yeah, long road is a good analogy, given that the pandemic essentially began at one of these facilities, not in Colorado, but a nursing home in the Seattle area that was hit by the virus last February. Dozens of residents and others ultimately died from COVID there. And really, it was a warning sign that facilities across the country would struggle. And the people inside, including ordinary folks like Tara Frechet, who lives in Greeley. I'm still not 100 percent, but I'm working on it. She was in a nursing home a year ago. That's when Jared Polis held a press conference to announce a state of emergency for the pandemic. What it does is it gives us access to resources and more legal flexibility to take steps now to protect the most vulnerable and better contain the outbreak. Truly, 
uh, reducing the chances of the trajectory that has occurred in countries like Italy from occurring here in Colorado. In those early days, there was a focus on sort of ramping up testing and supplies of PPE, personal protective equipment, at hospitals as these cases were rising by the day, right? Yes. In mid-March of last year, the state's public health department issued Public Health Order 2020. It barred most visitors to the facilities and also required masks, gowns, and gloves, PPE, as well as screenings for workers. For Frechet, even though she's in her early 50s, she has health issues. She was in a motorcycle accident when she was a teenager and lost her spleen, and that aids in the body's immune response. So she's one of the relatively younger people who are quite susceptible to COVID. Exactly. The reason she was in a nursing home in the first place was to recover from pneumonia. Coronavirus wasn't even on the radar. Me and my roommate were watching on the TV all the People in China, it was still mostly in China, were like, oh, my gosh, that's crazy. And um, I swear, like a day or two later, I was sick. She would later learn she had COVID. Frechet doesn't know exactly how or when she got it, but she and others alleged in a KUNC investigation that I did last year that nursing home workers were lax on measures that could have prevented COVID from spreading to residents. And data from the Department of Public Health and Environment showed a trend over the first two months of the pandemic. Inspectors identified hundreds of deficiencies, dozens of them for a simple lack of hand washing or PPE alone. And Throughout the pandemic, this trend has continued. For instance, at Centennial Healthcare Center in Greeley, where Frechet was, there were citations months after she left. That sounds alarming. Michael, how big of an issue is this? I asked for numbers from the state going all the way back to the start of the pandemic through the end of last month. In that time, state officials carried out 1,962 inspections and found 502 infection prevention or control deficiencies at nursing homes. They found another 407 at assisted living residences and dozens of others at similar facilities. What does the long-term care industry have to say about all of this? Well, I asked Doug Farmer. He's the CEO for the Trade Group for Nursing and Assisted Living Facilities. It's called the Colorado Healthcare Association. He said facilities had to adapt to changing federal, state, and local guidelines, and that, quote, it would have been helpful if the government could have turned their surveyors and their expertise toward a more consultative role. Instead, he said, what they did was, quote, focus intensely on finding fault in infection control practices, writing citations, and issuing fines. What about the deaths at these facilities? Throughout the pandemic, I've taken snapshots several times for news stories. About a third to 40 percent of deaths due to COVID-19 in Colorado throughout that time were people who were in nursing homes or assisted living centers. Doug Farmer with the trade group was quick to remind me that the spikes in cases at facilities mirrored those in the general public. And, you know, other experts have agreed with that 
assessment. It's important to keep in mind that asymptomatic workers have likely spread the virus as even screenings like temperature checks can miss them. And with that, as well as these deficiencies in terms of infection prevention at these facilities, it seems like the vaccine is the key factor. Yes, uh, even as some nursing workers decline to be vaccinated, and I've touched on that issue in prior reporting, with outbreaks declining, there's a heavy-hearted sigh of relief from Bob Murphy. He's with Colorado's AARP chapter. The trends appear to be going um downward in a good way. And, you know, after a year, it's about time. Murphy hasn't lost sight of the human toll, particularly lives lost in the last quarter of last year, when he says facilities should have done better at preventing resurgences. Overall, he says the lessons to be learned could fill a book and should include accountability from officials in the care industry. One quick takeaway, he says, is how important workers are to the lives of the residents they care for. I hope we learned a lesson there about the vital and indeed life-saving role that, that a well-trained staff can play. In this case, it didn't always work out that way. What about Tara Frechet? What's next for her? Last year, she was in that nursing home with a fever of 104. Then she wound up at the hospital on a ventilator for weeks. Now she considers herself lucky that she didn't die. Now she's one of those COVID long haulers still facing the after effects of her illness. I've been having problems with because I had a brain injury from having low oxygen for so long. So I forget a lot of words and things like that when I'm talking. So that kind of sucks, but um, it is getting better slowly. She says she needs help often, but can walk using a cane or a walker when she's out with her dogs. Her family, including her grandkids, are really a blessing to her right now. It's the best medicine. Is these kids and my daughter and my son. And now we're doing like movie night on Saturdays with my son. So, I mean, we've really been working hard on spending a lot of quality family time because, you know, we saw how close it it can be taken away from you, you know, how fast. How fast life can change or end. Michael DeIuana is KUNC's investigative reporter and has covered long-term care facilities since the start of the pandemic a year ago. You can find his reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Michael, thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Special Olympics Colorado has been providing access to adaptive sports for people with developmental disabilities for more than five decades. In a typical year, the organization serves more than 15,000 athletes across the state with hundreds of practices, competitions, and events in 21 different sports. In the last year, Special Olympics Colorado has been forced to make significant adjustments in order to carry out safe events. This weekend, the organization will host the Winter Sports Champions Highlight Show, a virtual showcase for the 2021 sports season. 
Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber spoke with Megan Scramen, the CEO and president of Special Olympics Colorado, about the unprecedented season and the upcoming event. Now, it seems like the pandemic might provide a dual challenge for the Special Olympics. Not only are you forced to adapt for COVID precautions, but I imagine that some of your athletes might be immunocompromised or just face more risk factors. How do you work to mitigate those risks and provide safe programming? Safety is and always has been our first priority. And so way back in March, we did suspend in-person practice right away but immediately offered a six-week health and wellness program called Fit5 because we really knew that for our athletes, as much of a risk to their health as not having Special Olympics would be, it also is such a big part of their social and emotional lives and well-being. So we really wanted to make sure that we were there for our athletes. And we really have been doing health and wellness programming in these kind of six-week challenges every day since last March. As we've moved into the year and things have started to open or we've learned more about how to safely be able to offer things, we've eased back into sports, always making sure that we're a level safer than what the county would allow for, because we do understand and recognize that some of our athletes may be more at risk. The other thing that's been important is to to ensure that we do have virtual offerings all the time. So we certainly say if you do not feel comfortable, if you are at high risk, please do not join us for any of our in-person practices. But we have a lot of other things for, for you to do and ways to stay involved and engaged right from your home. It sounds like you've really taken the pandemic not necessarily as a total setback, but as a way to kind of shift focus from athleticism and include a bit more about health and wellness. Yeah, fitness, nutrition, healthy habits, all of those things that that folks can engage in from wherever they are. And these, these fitness programs range from 5K training to centering around emotional wellness and stress coping. So there's a, there's a lot that can be done to, to make sure we're focusing on health and health can be a very broad term when, when you're thinking about it. For a lot of people who have developmental disabilities, structure is vitally important. How do you keep athletes engaged in such a dysregulating year? Where we have been able to add structure in, we really try to. And as an example on those, we have bingo. And we've kept bingo every week on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Doing that allows athletes to have some structure in their lives. And then from a virtual standpoint, our basketball season. We have the option for athletes to practice in person with their teams and small groups outdoors. But then we also are offering practice online every Tuesday evening. So again, it's something that athletes can come to know and expect. Tell me a bit about how you've changed certain events in the last year. We can take our winter season as a perfect example. All of our snow sports, so skiing, snowshoeing, we are able to allow athletes to practice in their small group. But then when it comes to competition, we're doing a time trial type uh, competition where an athlete is assigned a specific time to be on the race course. They then make their runs and then we calculate their time. Those times are then used for divisioning and awarding medals. So at no point does an athlete need to go be in contact with another athlete that they're competing against. The other thing is that it makes the Champions Highlight Show that's coming up uh, this weekend very exciting because it is like an awards show where athletes and their families can find out right then and there how they placed within their particular race or event. Speaking of that... Tell me a bit more about the Winter Sports Highlight Show. When is it? How do people watch? And aside from awards, what else will there be to see? 
The Winter Sports Champion Highlight Show is on March 13th at 7 p.m. And it's about a 30-minute show that folks can watch live from our Facebook page or on YouTube. And you'll really get to see a full recap of the season. Our athletes love it because all of the photos and videos that we've taken throughout the season, that is all compiled into this show. And Connor McGahey, the play-by-play announcer from the Avs, he helps host the show, which makes it really exciting. We even have a full compilation of virtual fans who have taken the time to write encouraging messages and tell our athletes, great job. What does the Special Olympics do for the athletes? In a year where we've been forced to sacrifice so much, why is this so important to hold on to? If there is one thing that this year has shown me, it is how vital our programming is. Our athletes gain confidence from participating. I mean, when you see yourself succeeding in sport or becoming healthier, that just benefits not only you, but your community at large. Because as our athletes gain confidence, they share their stories, become advocates for themselves. And that really does showcase to the entire community all of the amazing abilities of our athletes. It is truly an amazing community of People are coming together for the love and joy of sport. That was Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber speaking with Megan Scraman, president and CEO of Special Olympics Colorado. While Special Olympics Colorado has done a lot to provide safe and socially distant programming, the risks are still too great for many athletes, some of whom have made the tough decision to sit things out in the meantime. Rafael Avery is 11 years old and a regular Special Olympics athlete. He also has Down syndrome, which puts him at higher risk for COVID-19. So he had to spend this year on the sidelines. KUNC's Ray Solomon spoke to Rafael and his mother, Elizabeth Lichtenstein, about what the Special Olympics has meant to them and when they hope to rejoin that community. Hi. Hey, Raf, you ready for our meeting? Rafael, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about participating with the Special Olympics. Is that something you've done for a long time? Uh, yes, but no, because I was hit. That's a good point, Raphael. You were doing a bunch of Special Olympics and activities, and then you had your hip injury. Yeah. And then we had to take a break. So that was a good yeah. answer. You want to show her like this? Like this. It was in the socket. And then what happened? And it was pulled up. You're showing me with your hands that the hip bone pulled out of its socket. That sounds painful. It's very painful. It's very painful. Like, you have to be brave. You have to be brave. And powerful, too. And strong, too. And strong, too. And strong. And speaking of strength, your mom was telling me that physical exercise has been really important for you to get better. Isn't that true? Yes. That is the key to recovery on a hip injury like his. First he was in a wheelchair, then he was in a walker, and then he was allowed to walk, and then he was allowed to run. And eventually he was allowed to go back to all his sports. And so we started getting into Special Olympics. Basketball was first, right? Yes. Was it fun? And you had friends? Yes. Right, and the Special Olympics, the basketball team, that was part of your recovery. Yeah, we had just started doing it, I guess, early that year, early 2020. He was clear. We wanted to get back into all your sports. So we had the basketball. And in the summer, in the summer, they were moving to soccer, the Special Olympics, uh, skiing. What else did I say? Horseback riding, swimming, football, track, something like that. 
you wanted to do all those for us. Yeah. You were cleared to do some exercise. And then, and then in his year of healing after his surgery, it was like one thing after another. And then COVID is just yet one more thing. And so we locked ourselves down like everyone. But then when restrictions started loosening, we really didn't loosen the way other people did. When your sports were canceled, were you sad? I wasn't that sad, but I was a bit, a bit mad. Why were you mad? Because I miss it. Yeah, you miss it. Have you been able to do any of your normal activities during COVID? Um, nope. And he used to go to an after-school program with friends, and so he hasn't done that. Right. And Ray, Ray is a little boy with Down syndrome that we really want to see. We see him on FaceTime but you can't, he did Special Olympics with you. We can't see him in person because he doesn't know how to stop hugging. He doesn't quite get it. So there's a loss of physical activity and then there's also this social loss. Right, you miss your friends? Yeah, you do, but six feet. You mean six feet distance between people? Yes, and when friends hug a lot, you can't can't see those friends, true? I want to know if you've been able to get the physical exercise that you need to recover from, you know, your hip surgery without your activities. Not really. So does mom try to get you to go outside every day? Yeah. Do I try to get you to swing? Yes. Oh, I see your hands on your hips. And do I try to get you to get on your bike? Mm -hmm. Do I try to get you to do the exercises your PT Mm -hmm. gave you? Do you do them? (laughs) What do you usually say? Nothing, mom. You usually say tomorrow. Yeah. So you were saying before, Elizabeth, that Raphael needs a lot of motivation to do these exercises. He really does. So we've had to push him hard to move. And it's tricky when there's so many competing interests with his brother and in the family and lots of doctor visits and and juggling medical emergencies. And I feel like I'm listing all these excuses why I don't exercise, <laughs> but um, really it's, it's just, it's, it's hard. And during COVID it's extra hard because it's so much easier just to turn on the TV and go cook dinner versus stop and go push, make him put on his shoes and make him go out for a walk. And that's what I really liked about signing up for activities because seeing other children do it, especially typically especially typically developing children, really helps him participate. And so that's really why this loss is, is very tricky for us. Uh, Raphael was telling me that it, you know, it's made him mad to lose those activities. As, as a mom, how has that impacted you? Um, it's really frustrating because he's not getting the physical fitness he needs. I worry and I want him to heal and get strong. And the more you exercise the more you can exercise. So even though I'm happy not to be driving everywhere, (laughs) right, you too, I really miss him being, having sports and not having the whole responsibility on my shoulders to get him to move his body because it's so hard and he doesn't want to listen to me. And that's kind of a a mom thing where your kids are always going to listen to the other teachers and the teenage coaches and friends and have that peer support. When will you feel safe resuming some of those activities? When will you feel safe maybe taking up Special Olympics again or some of those other sports? We're ready to play. So you know what she asked me? 
Ray asked me when we're going to feel comfortable getting back into sports. And I'm really hopeful for this spring. I think that if the trends, well, I'm hoping it'll be this spring, Raphael, because if it's outside and if we take the proper precautions um, with distancing and uh, washing our hands, if we touch something that other people touch and, and physical distance, like you mentioned before, right? Yes, it masks every single time. That's true. And then I think as long as the trends are low for COVID in the community and as long as um, the CDC and the local county health requirements say it's okay and that we feel safe that people are taking precautions, we will tiptoe into it. And if we have to pull out because people aren't being careful, we will. That was KUNC's Ray Solomon speaking with Raphael Avery and Elizabeth Lichtenstein. You can tune into the Special Olympics Winter Champion Show on Facebook or YouTube this Saturday, March 13th at 7 p.m. That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. We'll be back with more next week. 